Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning. Tell you what, let's finish up Acts today. Mmm, mmm, we'll see. That's what we're going to try. That is our aim. All right. We've, uh, we left off last week with Paul's emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders. And we were focusing most of the sermon in terms of uh, the doctrine we were looking at anyway on repentance, repentance toward God. We talked about how it's important. uh, The idea of repentance isn't simply to repent from or, uh, uh, or repent of, but to repent toward. We turn toward God, and this is what Paul was testifying to. He was reminding the Ephesians that he withheld nothing from them. Uh, that uh, his hands were clean because he had, he had preached to them the full counsel of God and urged men everywhere uh, to repent toward God. Uh, and now, just to kind of set the stage for what happens next, you can go ahead and look at uh, chapter 21. This is a pretty important thing because it opens up a theological can of worms. We're just going to read the first four verses to start out with. Acts 21.1. Now, it came to pass that when we, had de- <clears throat> sorry, when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Hmm. Where's Paul heading? Jerusalem, yes. And they found disciples while they were waiting on their uh, connecting ship. And they were there for a week. And what did these Christians tell them? Through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. I want you to remember that. There's a couple things we're going to read before we come back and explain that. Skip down to verse 8. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Remember Philip? Yeah, from the early chapters of Acts. Uh, Who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus. We have met him before too. He's the one who prophesied about the drought and the famine that were coming. Uh, A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. So they land... And while they're hanging out, these Christians tell them, don't go to Jerusalem. And we've got this from the Spirit. We've been praying for you, and uh, we're receiving this in the Spirit. Don't go to Jerusalem. And then Agabus, the prophet, well-regarded prophet, um, 
shows up and does this illustration, very, very Jeremiah moment. You know, he binds his hands and his feet with Paul's belt and says, the Holy Spirit tells me that the man who owns this belt is going to be bound in Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles. So they hear this, and they're hearing it from the mouth of a man that they regard as a prophet, so that Paul, please don't go. Change your plans. Paul had purposed in his heart to go to other places, remember? And the Spirit stopped him. Uh, it, it stopped in a dream, or the Spirit simply forbade them to go. So it's not like Paul had never changed his plans before. And here they are getting a word from the Lord about what's going to happen. Read on here for a couple more verses. In, in verse 13, then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now, let's unpack this a little bit because this is something that uh, there is not universal agreement on. I'm going to tell you what I'm pretty sure is the case. Uh, But I have heard it preached and taught by men that I have high regard for, that Paul, in fact, missed it. Because what we're going to see, Paul is getting ready for the last stage of his ministry. When he gets to Jerusalem, some things are going to happen that pretty much decide the course of the rest of his life, that determine that he's going to spend much of the rest of his life uh, incarcerated uh, or on trial with people trying to kill him. People are already trying to kill him. The Jews have been chasing him all over Asia Minor and the Roman Empire, uh, always just one step behind him, right? But here we see instances again and again where God's people who have been praying with him, praying for him, just praying, speaking by the Spirit about what's going to happen if he proceeds as plans and and goes to Jerusalem. So there are some who say, look, Paul missed it. God tried to warn him. It's kind of Paul's fault for winding up in chains because he ignored the warnings that God sent him. But that really doesn't It's not the best explanation. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead here for a minute. In uh, chapter 23, uh, and this is after something we'll talk about here in just a second, but it says here in uh, verse 11, but the following night the Lord stood by him, stood by Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Uh, Jesus apparently was giving his endorsement to this chain of events. It was because of what happens in Jerusalem that he winds up in Rome and is able to testify to whom he's able to testify. But it brings up the question of what is prophecy for? What is prophecy? If Paul didn't miss it, then were these people who prophesied missing it? When they spoke by the Spirit telling him not to go, were they listening to the wrong spirit? Were they wrong? Here's what happened. Now, Agabus... The mature prophet, you'll notice that what he says is simply this. The man who owns this belt is going to be bound by the Jews and turned over to the Gentiles. He doesn't follow it up with, therefore, don't go. Paul's companions, when they heard the prophecy of Agabus, they're the ones who said, hear what's going to happen according to the word of the Lord that came through Agabus, so don't go. They took the prophecy and then they made their own judgment about what Paul should do with the prophecy. The ones who, it's a little bit trickier uh, when it says previously, 
they told him by the Spirit. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. But what's that mean? I think taking the whole picture here, it's simply a matter of they had a strong uh, sense, a leading, a knowing in their spirit that bad trouble was waiting for Paul in Jerusalem. Therefore, they took it upon themselves to give Paul the interpretation. Uh, We believe God's telling you not to go. What they sensed was almost certainly the same thing that stirred Agabus to predict a little more specifically, prophesy more specifically, you're going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles when you go to Jerusalem. They were picking up the same sense of that and just assumed that it was God telling him not to go. Paul had heard from Jesus and would continue to hear from Jesus. It was absolutely in his heart, and he knew he was going to be in trouble. He'd gotten in trouble last time he was in Jerusalem. Uh, In fact, uh, when he was there, Jesus told him to get out, get out. Didn't tell him never to come back. He just told him to get out. So now he's heading back to Jerusalem, knowing that chains await him, and Paul is, is trying to comfort them. But what he says is this, look, I get it, but you're breaking my heart. I mean, thank you for the warning, but don't beg me not to go. I'm ready to be bound. I'm ready to die. Now, he, he will express his love for the Jews in, in, in some of his other writings, but we do see his heart here. And uh, you've got to remember Paul's background. What was he? He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious Jew. He was just as passionate as uh, had been just as passionate about his Judaism as the Jews that are now chasing him. Uh, are okay this is who he was before the uh, stoning of Stephen and before his own conversion he was one of these guys that was chasing down those who were in the way that's what the Christians were called before they were called Christians they were in the way get out of the way no he he was urging people to be bound he was approving of, of Stephen being put to death and so he gets it he understands the heart of these Sadducees uh, mostly, the, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are now chasing him down, trying to shut him up. Why? Because they're zealous for what they consider to be the one true religion. And they see uh, this preaching of Jesus. They don't understand it, as we'll also explore here in a little bit. Uh, but his heart is to be able to explain himself, to preach to them, uh, and then just go where it takes him. So he goes to Jerusalem and uh, he meets again with James and the elders. We saw this uh, at 10 chapters ago, not quite 10 chapters ago. Do you remember? He had been in um, Antioch, and there was, a, uh, there was a big discussion about what, the, what people were required to do. These Gentiles are coming to the Lord. Jews are coming to the Lord, but the Jews were a little bit mad that the Gentiles weren't having to go through Judaism to do it. So the Jerusalem Council decrees that, no, they do not have to be circumcised. Uh, they lay this other stuff down. That was two or three message, uh, messages ago. Uh, the message, I think, is called the Jerusalem Council. If you've got questions about that, you can go look at it. Uh, but when he meets with them this time, James offers him this, this counsel. James is a wise pastor. He's essentially the head of the church in Jerusalem, but there are the other leaders there as well. And James says, look, Paul, here's the problem. Here's your reputation. The Jews see you as someone who's going out there and attacking their traditions. Paul's not doing that. We know that. We're looking at his sermons. We're seeing that what he's doing is preaching the gospel. But because he refuses to preach circumcision to the Gentiles, they see him as attacking Judaism. 
And here Paul is still living uh, essentially as an observant Jew who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He's what we would call today a messianic Jew or a completed Jew. He sees the Jewish religion, the Old Testament, the law, all as leading up to the Messiah and Jesus Christ himself being the fulfillment of all that. So he sees it, he doesn't see it as either or. He sees it as all, everything part of one big whole. And, but they see this as an, an as some, as a rejection of their faith. Uh, but James knows Paul. He understands that Paul still is a, is a Jew culturally, traditionally, as he understands his heart. And he says, so, so for the sake of appearances, to calm them down, he says, look, we've got some young men who are going to the temple. They've, they've got this vow thing. I don't ask me to explain it because I don't understand it. But part of it was they had to get the, uh, their head shaped. And he said, Paul, why don't you go pay for it? Go pay for their haircut and take this vow with them and walk through this thing with them just to show the local Jews that you're not their enemy. So he does. He goes through this ritual with them. And on the last day, the day the vow is to be completed, some of the Jews recognize him. And they mistakenly believe that he has brought, because Paul's traveling with some Gentile converts, all right? They mistakenly believe that Paul has brought some of them into the temple with him. He hasn't. He's there with these young Jewish men performing this vow, whatever it is. But they start screaming, saying, look what Paul's done now. Now he's desecrated the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. And they are, it, it turns into a riot. In fact, a centurion has to bring his company of men in there to calm the people down. They grab Paul because they're in the midst of beating Paul. So they think, what has this guy done? And Paul has to, Paul's like, you know, hey, what, what's going on? And, and, and the centurion says, what'd you do? And he and Paul says, uh, hey, can I speak to these people? And, uh, and, and the, the, uh, the, the soldier says, you speak Greek? Because here he is in the, he, in the Jewish temple. He says, yeah, I speak Greek. And the, and the soldier says, aren't you, aren't you this Egyptian guy who stirred up a bunch of uh, assassins? And Paul's like, no, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus. No mean city. You know, give me a break. I'm not from Corinth or someplace like that. I'm from a sophisticated town. Uh, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm a Jew. Let me talk to these people. So he starts to address, then he turns to his brethren his jewish brethren and starts to address them in hebrew and they listen for a while until paul gets to the part where god uh, told him where jesus told him i'm, I'm going to send you to the gentiles and then all of a sudden they start tearing their clothes and throwing dirt up in the air and not listening anymore and the and the centurion is like ah, all right we're just going to beat you till you tell us what's going on here this is the regard that romans had for lesser citizens and so as they're stringing him up paul says is it legal for you to do this to a roman citizen and the centurion stops and says, wait, you're a Roman? And Paul says, yeah. And the, and the centurion says, well, me too. I had to pay a lot for my citizenship. How much, how much did you pay? Paul said, I was born a citizen. So, and, and this suddenly, this saves him from the beating. In fact, the Roman is now concerned, the centurion is now concerned, he's going to get in trouble for even binding Paul without a trial. He's got rights. And so suddenly he's entitled to the full protection of Rome. And uh, during this conversation, as he's making his defense to the Jews, Paul plays the Pharisee card again. He's done this before. Uh, and he says, look, brethren, here's what I'm being persecuted for. Nothing more or less. I'm preaching that there's a resurrection. 
And, and of course, who's, this, who's the group that's in power? The Sadducees. The high priest is a Sadducee. The Sanhedrin are Sadducees. The Pharisees are there. Uh, they're the ones who have a more traditional view, what we would share, a view in the resurrection, a view in the spirit world. The Sadducees acknowledge none of this stuff. So Paul capitalizes on that. I'm a Pharisee just like you. And I'm preaching about the resurrection. I'm preaching about angels and the afterlife. And so the Pharisees suddenly say, you know, we really don't see where this guy's done anything wrong. And they stop short of saying we believe everything he says. But they kind of do what Gamaliel had said earlier in the book when he said, look, we don't know about this, but we want to be careful and not find ourselves fighting against God. So they're like, we don't see that he's done anything worthy of punishment. So uh, why don't we just lay off just in case he's actually speaking for God? So meanwhile, the centurion has taken custody of Paul for his protection, for Paul's protection. And he's figuring out what to do. And the Jews hatch a plot. And their plot is this. They get up, they, a bunch of them get together and say, let's take a vow to each other. We're not going to eat anything until we have killed Paul. That's how dedicated they are. And so the plot is they're going to send a message to the centurion. Hey, can you just deliver him to this uh, little meeting? We just want to question him again. And then while they're transporting him from here to there, we'll kill him. We'll just assassinate him, let the chips fall. And uh, the plot is overheard. Somebody tells Paul. Paul gets this, uh, sends a message to the centurion. Hey, listen, listen to what this, this kid has to say. And so the, Paul ends up being transported back to Caesarea with the company of hundreds of Roman soldiers. Two centurions and their troops, plus spearmen and uh, horsemen. And so he gets this entourage, this military entourage, to go and stand before the governor, whose name is Felix. And so he gets to stand before Felix and make his case. Let's look at this in chapter 24. Uh, beginning in verse 22. And he, he makes his case again and tell, ends up, ends up in, in verse 21 saying that I'm being judged concerning the resurrection. And then verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, Having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjured, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Now, this is a pretty good deal because he's, he's incarcerated, but he's got a lot of liberty. It's like house arrest, Okay. Uh, and uh, after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Ducilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. <laughs> when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Now, this is, this is kind of an interesting thing, too. Felix has a Jewish wife. This guy, Paul, has been brought into town. Uh, you know, he wasn't snuck into town. He was paraded into town with all these Roman soldiers. So Felix wants to hear what's going on. Paul makes his case. And as Paul gets specific about the gospel he's preaching, including self-control, righteousness, the judgment to come, Felix gets uncomfortable. Eh, all right, that's enough for now. So there's a couple of things. He said, you go away for now because, number one, I don't want to hear anymore right now. It's starting to bother my conscience. 
And uh, I will hear more later. And it says that at least it, it wasn't his full motive, because it says also one of the things he was hoping for that was that the longer he held on to Paul, the greater opportunity he would have that somebody would come and bribe him. Hey, look, we'll give you this much money if you'll just let Paul sneak out with us. He wanted to profit by this. All right. They sent for him more often and conversed with him. So at least he continues to hear Paul speak in verse 27. But after two years, two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So here we go. Uh, Politicians refuse to make a decision because they don't want to make somebody mad. And he's trying to appease the the Jews in his uh, governorship. But for two years, I love this, the heading of this section, 22 to 27 in my Bible, simply says, Felix procrastinates. Felix procrastinates, and Paul ends up cooling his heels for two years. I don't know, I just, thank God for the uh, Bill of Rights, right? Speedy trial. Anyway, so now Paul has to go through the whole thing again with Festus. Festus is not a step up. He simply replaces Felix as the local governor there. He makes his case. And uh, uh, Festus says, all right, this sounds like a Jewish problem. I'll tell you what, let's do this. Why don't we uh, go back to Jerusalem? (laughs) And you can make your case there. I'll go with you, and you can defend yourself against the Jews. And Paul's no dummy. I'm going to wind up back in Jerusalem. I'm heading to Rome. Uh, It's... uh, (laughs) And plus he kind of knows that Jerusalem is not the safest place for him. He's not going to make any headway. The Jews want him back there for only one reason, and it ain't to give him a fair trial or a fair hearing. So Paul says, no, I appeal to Caesar. If you're not going to give me justice, let's kick it upstairs. Let's go to the next level. So uh, the, the next stop is Herod Agrippa, just better known as Agrippa. Uh, he's the puppet king. He's a step between Felix or sorry, Festus and Rome. So he gets to tell his testimony again, this time to Agrippa in chapter 26, beginning in verse 24. It says, now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And he said, I am not mad or crazy, he means. I'm not crazy, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth And reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. Now he's kind of buttering Agrippa up. He's like, hey, King Agrippa knows all this. You know, he's he's part of the Herodian dynasty. He's he's interested. He's he's actually got a Jewish, you know, lineage there. Paul knows that Herod Agrippa is not truly religious. All right, but he's appealing to the man that Agrippa claims to be. All right, especially in the presence of the Jews. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. You're such a good, wise, attentive king. We know you already know this, so I hardly need to say it in your presence. Uh, Since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Talk about backing somebody into a corner, right? Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, this 
statement there has been interpreted many different ways. I kind of like to read it just as it's written. I like to picture Agrippa saying, man, this is so persuasive. You've almost persuaded me. And there's a whole message there about being almost persuaded. What is it that takes somebody from being almost persuaded to being persuaded? However, to be honest, it's more likely that what he's saying is, you are not going to convert me in one conversation here, Paul. In a short time, you're not going to change my mind to your way of thinking. Or he was saying this mockingly, all right? He probably was not that close to believing. I can't say it for sure, all right? Uh, History shows us that he probably did not become a Christian. We'll put it that way. And then Agrippa, or uh, uh, and Paul said, verse 29, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. (laughs) Then, uh, or sorry, when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man has done nothing worthy of death or change. And uh, King Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. So they listened to his whole thing, and they're like, Wow, this guy's been in prison for two years, or he's been incarcerated for two years. We finally heard him out. We don't even know what he's doing here in the first place. Just going by what he said, what we've heard today, we would have just let him go. But since he's already appealed to Caesar... He's going to Caesar. So now the next thing is, get him to Rome. Let him make his case before, uh, I guess, maybe the closest thing that would pass uh, for a Supreme Court decision back then. And uh, so now we have an account of the uh, voyage to Rome. And it takes several different ships. They have to transfer. They get to one town and they hop on it. And I imagine uh, Rome, for all of its military might, was not known Uh, for having a navy. Uh, They never really mastered sea power, uh, but they did what they would do is commandeer merchant vessels and, uh, you know, book passage for their prisoners or their soldiers going from one port to another. And uh, like I said, they go from port to port, and it's getting a little bit late in the season. They're actually in, in one port on Crete, but they're on the wrong side of the island. So what they really intended to do at this point was simply sail around the corner uh, to a safe harbor on Crete. They were just going to go a few miles. But as soon as they put, and, but Paul said, don't go. We shouldn't get on this ship because the Lord shows me that if we do, uh, it's going to wreck and it's going to cost everybody. Uh, but no, no, we, we can make it. Let's get around this. And as soon as they, they put out to sea, a nor'easter comes up and blows them out to sea away from Crete. And so for 14 days, they are battling this terrible, terrible storm. And, uh, it's so bad that they can't eat for 14 days. And it could be they were fasting, but more than likely they were seasick. And they were emptying the ship. They are throwing everything they could think of to lighten the ship because it's sinking further and further down uh, into the, to the water level. And then Paul comes out and, and encourages them and says, you guys, you need to eat something. I know you don't feel like it, but it's been 14 days. You need your strength. Eat something. And here's what he said. He said, said they all ate, and then they threw the wheat overboard. In other words, all that was really left in the ship's hold was a bunch of food. So they ate enough to satisfy them. Then they threw the rest of the food overboard. This is how desperate they are to lighten it. But Paul said, but take heart. God has shown me that you're going to lose everything on this ship, but nobody's going to die. Now, how seriously they took him, I don't know. But some people were encouraged, and they, 
they see an island, they start getting closer to it, and they're taking soundings, they're checking, they think it's just a matter of time before we wind up on the rocks. A couple of the sailors try to escape in the skiff, and Paul says, don't let them. If they try to escape, none of us are going to survive. And so the soldiers cut the ropes and let the boat go free. They're actually taking orders from the prisoner Paul now. And finally, they do. They run the boat up on the beach, and everybody, it turns out, has survived. There was uh, one, one of the uh, soldiers decided he better kill all the prisoners since they, they were, this was a part of, the, part of this vessel's mission was prisoner transport. He goes, well, we don't want them escaping. But the centurion kept that from happening, saved Paul's life and the rest of the prisoners. And so they find out they're on an island called Malta. And you've probably heard this little story, but it's pretty cool, so let's read it in uh, chapter 28. Now, when they had escaped, then they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has, not, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. I love the way this is all set up. The natives are watching this. They just miraculously survived this shipwreck. This shipwreck, And then they see this snake bite Paul on the hand, and they're like, wow, this is how this works. He thought he was golden. He must be an evil man to survive something like a shipwreck and then end up getting bit by a, a venomous snake. This is truly... Uh, supernatural justice. And so they're waiting for him to swell up, start gasping for breath, and fall down dead. But nothing happens. However, uh, yeah, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after he had looked, after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Hmm. <laughs> Truth was somewhere in between there, right? In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. That's pretty exciting, you know? I mean, what a, it's a neat time of ministry there on Malta, all because of the faithfulness of Paul. Now, something I have to make clear to you, and this goes back to... Uh, I have time to get to this here real quick. Yeah, we are. Uh, when Leon Van Royen was here many, many years ago, he, he did a great illustration of this. But when you look at the end of Mark where it says, uh, in my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will, take, uh, they will handle deadly serpents and will not harm them. If they drink any deadly poison, no harm will come to them. Uh, and so, what we, so we see, and this is some of the worst examples of extreme, extremism in the church, where you read about these snake handlers, right? Some of these hyper-faith churches that literally pull out a jar of rattlesnakes and start handing them from person to person because the Bible says they shall take up serpents, right? 
deadly snakes. It's like, well, if we're going to follow the Bible, and if our faith is good, and people have died doing this. So what's this verse mean? This is what this verse means. <laughs> okay? You don't go looking for snakes to pick up. But if in the process of handling firewood, you end up handling a viper and it bites you, you don't have to worry. But particularly, listen to this, what was Paul doing? He was, he was doing, he was following the will of God. He was right in the center of God's will for him. Going, he was someone going somewhere to do something for God. All right? Now, it doesn't mean we can't claim that protection. Well, oh, no, I wasn't on my way to Rome to witness. I was on a camping trip when I got bit. You still have a promise of the same protection. You understand that? Don't go looking for ways to get bit. Don't go looking for poison to drink. Uh, we don't see it in the scripture, uh, but there's a pretty strong tradition that the apostle John was given poison to drink as a death sentence, and he drank it and survived. He died of old age. Of course, he was very old when he drank the poison. No, I'm kidding. I, it was the, the poison was long before he died, all right? So let me l- read this to you now, and then we'll refer back to something that, that Paul had said, or that, they, that James had said to Paul earlier, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up. In uh, chapter 28, beginning in verse 17, I'm going to read the rest of this chapter, which is actually the rest of the book, so bear with me. Listen to this. Acts 28, 17, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He's in Rome now. Who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for, uh, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Now, he's trying to find common ground. He wants them to know, understand that he is not in Rome to testify against the Jews. He's got nothing against them. It's just that he felt compelled to appeal to Rome because the Jews were trying to kill him. He says, it's for the hope of Israel, our hope as Jews. This is why I'm here in these chains. When they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. So here he's in Rome now making his case, and the Jews are like, this is the first we've ever heard of any of this, Paul. Nobody's been here talking bad about you. We've never heard of this case. But we desire to hear more from you. Sorry, we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, what sect? Christianity. We know that it is spoken against everywhere. Mark that for a second and we'll come back to it. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet, to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing, you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing, you will see and not perceive. 
For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it, known to, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching these things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And this is the abrupt ending to the book of Acts. I've heard it said, I like it, that the reason the uh, the book of Acts doesn't have a formal ending is because the book of Acts is still being written through us, right? Acts of the believers, the acts of the Holy Spirit through his church. But here we see the last record we have in the history that's shown in the book of Acts anyway is that he was, again, house arrest. He's living in a house, but he's not free. He has visitors. He can teach. He just can't travel. He can't leave. He's still waiting, uh, officially awaiting trial. But he meets with the Jews and tries to explain himself. So he's trying to uh, preemptively explain to the Jews so that they don't come looking for me. Let me get my side of this. Uh, Almost assuming they've heard everything uh, about the great apostle Paul and this huge case, how this, this, this man who has been, uh, uh, they started a riot in Jerusalem. They got sent to Caesarea, was in prison there for two years through two governors and then gets sent to Agrippa himself, King Agrippa, and now gets sent to Rome. And when he gets there, he says, hey, look, before you guys get all upset, I wanted to meet with you guys to tell you what really happened. Tells them, and they're like, hey, Paul, we didn't know anything about you. We didn't know anything about this case. We never heard of this trial. I guess that's old news. It fizzled before it made it here. However, since you brought it up, we do want to know about Christianity because everything we've heard is bad. It's spoken of against It's spoken against by everyone. Now, that's something. And they're probably, all right, this this is a little bit of hyperbole, I'm sure. They are not inclined to agree with the sect of the Christians. But the the, the thing is, what are they, what are they hearing that's bad? Kind of going back to his conversation, his earlier conversation in Jerusalem when he meets with James. James is like, look, Paul, here's the deal. We know. Man, we are giving glory to God for all the conversions that are happening out there. All the people that are coming to Christ through your ministry, Luke and Timothy and all these guys who are traveling with you, we appreciate the missionary work you're doing. However, there's still this unfortunate perception that what you're doing out there is simply stirring people up against the Jews or actually stirring the Jews up, uh, 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 you know, coming against them, attacking their beliefs like you don't respect them anymore. So do this. So what they are known for rightly or wrongly, is what they are against. The Christians are being seen as anti-this, in this case, anti-Jews. In Ephesus, they were slandered as what? Anti-Artemis, anti-Diana. Here's the thing, and this is for us today. There is absolutely no way you can avoid being known for being against some things. All right? Paul did not go into the streets of Ephesus saying, tear down this ungodly idol, uh, this statue of Diana. It's, It's an abomination to God. He didn't do that. 
Did he respect the temple? Did he respect the worship of Diana, of Artemis? Absolutely not. But all he did was go out and preach Jesus. But what some people heard was, he hates our culture. He hates the thing that's at the center of what we believe. This is a hate-filled sect. All right? You go out and you preach the truth. You share Jesus. Count on it. There are some people who are going to hear hate. It's just the way it is. When Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but a sword, that's one of the things he's talking about. It's going to, the gospel will offend some people. We can't avoid it. However, we do have to be careful so that we, it's not our fault that we are known more for what we are against than what we are for. I will tell you this story. Sure, I've told it before. Uh, but I can remember in high school, uh, about junior year, we went to one of these uh, seminars on the evils of rock music. This is where I first heard of, you guys remember this craze, the backward masking craze? where you'd uh, and, this, and this was one of the, the centerpieces of this guy's argument. Fascinating. Oh, my goodness. It was one of the most fascinating seminars I'd been to. We bought, it was a two-cassette tape teaching. We bought the tapes, and we would have kids from high school come and listen to this thing. Everybody wanted to hear this stuff. And, of course, this was the part where the, uh, what's the stairway to heaven? You play that one part back. It's actually the part that says, your stairway lies on the whispering wind, or something like that. You play that part back, it goes, I will sing because I live with Satan. Which is, it actually sounds more like, I will sing because I live with Satan. But it's supposed to sound like, I will sing because I live with Satan. So people start looking for all of these hidden messages, and this guy's case was, your mind is so sharp that it stores these backwards uh, phrases in your brain and actually affects you spiritually. It was years before I realized that was complete hogwash. It's just not true. Now, there still is a question because some of these messages sounded like they were really in there. And it does kind of make you wonder, what were those messages there for? But then people started playing the weirdest things. One of the clearest... <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was one recording played it backwards, it says even clearer than the Stairway to Heaven bit, it said, someone sang a song for Satan. Played forward, it said, a horse is a horse, of course, of course. It was the Mr. Ed theme song. And I'm like, who is looking for satanic lyrics in the Mr. Ed theme song? I think it was Petra that put a backward track on one of their albums. So when you played it backwards, it says, why are you looking for the devil when you're supposed to be looking for Jesus? But this was such scary, exciting stuff. And you know, this is when people started burning their rock albums. And now listen, I am not defending all secular music. There was some garbage out there, some trash out there. You know why it was trash, though? Because of what they were singing about forward, not because of the hidden messages. You know, it's kind of like people... Uh, the Bible codes, people want to find these mysterious, you know, if you take the fifth letter of every third paragraph and the fourth letter of every seventh paragraph and you line these up, and if you imagine vowels to go in between these original Hebrew letters, you come up with a message that says Barack Obama's going to be president. <laughs> now, you've got to do a lot of work to find these hidden messages. I'm like, well, there's an awful lot of people that don't have any idea what the Bible says in plain English who need to be spending more time just reading that, not looking for a secret code. And even if it is in there, 
It's kind of silly to be spending our time on, isn't it? Now, there were a couple of negative effects, as you can imagine. I was a guy, and I've told you this. Listen, there are, I'll say this until God convicts me differently. If I can go back, there's a hundred, probably a thousand things I would do different in my high school career. Here's how I would describe myself. I was a kid with a lot of zeal for the gospel, but not very much knowledge. I had zeal, but not a lot of knowledge. So I had a heart to see people come to Christ. I shared my faith. And people, some people came to the Lord. But do you know what we were known for? The music. You guys don't listen to rock music. You guys are afraid of rock music. And that's probably what we deserve to be known for because that's what we made the biggest deal about. I, I was so in fear over because of this seminar that I would be, we'd be sitting in the locker room changing for PE and, and uh, some, somebody would have the radio on, might have even been the teacher. But here, I'm listening to Joan Jett. I love rock and roll coming over the speakers. And I'm just kind of going, I want that stuff poisoning my spirit, you know? I've also joked before, I didn't have any really fun satanic albums to burn, so I ended up burning my Bee Gees and my Barry Manilow while everybody else was burning their Ozzy Osbourne and all this other stuff. Huh? <laughs> Get thee behind me, Jeff. But, so here's two bad things that happen. Number one, just a lot of really good music for a few years. Some of it I didn't discover until years later. I'm like, oh man, that music was really good, and I missed it because I wasn't listening to, mu- to secular music back then. I'm, I don't really, that's, I'm kind of tongue in cheek. I don't have any regrets. There was some great music I was listening to, Christian music. And I'm not advocating, hey, let down your guard and listen to all this secular music, because a lot of it is, gar- hey, listen, it doesn't have to say, I love Satan to be of the devil. The message of you, boy, oh boy. That's a whole nother subject, and it's painful. But here's the other thing. It really cost us, I think, in the, in the long run, in the big picture, I think we missed an opportunity with a lot of our classmates because we were known more for being against some things than we were for being for some things. I wish we had been ridiculed uh, and known for praying for people. All right? We, they would have still made fun of us, you understand. They made fun of us before the rock music thing. They made fun of us because this was a charismatic church in 1981, and these things weren't on every, you know. I've said this before. You can go into many mainstream denominations, mainline denominations, and you'll see people with their hands up in the air. Now people just worship in different ways. Back then, people just didn't do this, except us. And there would be my classroom, classmates looking through the glass, waiting to get in and play basketball uh, once we got all of our chairs off the gym floor. And they'd see this because they're there at the end of the service waiting to get in. And what next day we'd show up at school and they'd be going, woo, falling down in the hall because they saw that happen in our church. They didn't know what they were making fun of. They were just making fun of it. That's okay. We were conspicuous. I'll say that. We were, we, uh, the, we were conspicuous. Even among those who, who referred to us as a cult, the Millis Moonies. I can deal with that, but, but to be better known for, for being anti-anything, and we do, we need to take a strong stand against certain things, but we need, the, the, the being against something almost has to be simply a natural component of being for something. 
I cannot be for this because I am for this. All right? And what, what our message needs to be is the gospel. What did Jesus say? If we, we were known for our hatred, not of people at least, but of bad music, evil music. But Jesus said we were supposed to be known for our love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Now, wouldn't it have been interesting? Now, I don't know who to point fingers at here. The Jews came to Paul and said, look, we want to hear this from you because we haven't heard about your case. We really don't care about your case. But we have heard of this group of people, and they're spoken evil of everywhere. I want to know whose fault that was. Was it just their prejudice, or were people not living this out? Wouldn't it have been something to say, Paul, we're a little bit worried about this doctrinally, but we got to tell you, the Christians we've met have been awesome. They always offer to pray for us. They're never in need. They're never in lack because they always share everything with everybody. We're attracted to the lifestyle. Can you just explain the doctrine? Then they would have been this close. They would have already been almost persuaded. Instead, what they had to report to Paul was it's spoken evil of everywhere. Again, can't read between the lines very much. It might have just been their prejudice. But they're supposed to see our love for one another, and that will at least open the door to sharing our doctrine. All right? Finally, this. And praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. Let me wrap this up. Let me wrap up the history before I make my final point. This takes us up, by the way, uh, Paul's imprisonment here takes us up to uh, 62 AD. Uh, after two years of house arrest, it looks like Paul was released for a couple of years. And then uh, a few years later, when Rome was burned and Nero blamed the Christians for that, uh, there was a huge uh, resurgence of persecution. Paul was beheaded about the same time that Peter was executed. We will read a little bit more about Paul in his letters and fill in some of the gaps historically. I will just say this, and I'll make this point again and again because it's so important. Paul's imprisonment might not have been an ideal situation for him, but do you know what we have as a result of Paul's imprisonment? A lot of the New Testament. Because when he was in prison, he wrote letters. And those letters were circulated and copied and preserved for us. These letters are known by the cities where he wrote them to. Churches he wrote them to in these cities. But here's my final point. I believe in a God, I know you do too, who loves us as a father loves his children. And every good father wants to see his children blessed. This is kind of one of the foundational beliefs of a word of faith church. It's just that, like everything else, every good doctrine has, a, has an extreme or a negative side to it. I believe God wants us blessed because he loves us. I believe Psalm 103, what's he do? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Forget none of his benefits. Bless his holy name. Forget none of his benefits. Who forgives all of your iniquities. Who heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit fills your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. There is forgiveness, there is healing, there is prosperity. This is the heart of God. This is what he wants. Therefore, when sickness touches me, I stand on the word of God, not just Psalm 103, but I stand on the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Paul, the law even, which all made provision for healing. I believe that's my portion. 
I don't think God is glorified in my sickness. I believe he desires to see me healed, and I believe the stripes on Jesus' back purchased that for me. I don't believe he's glorified by my poverty. And that's why I think Paul, that's one of the many things that we read in the Word of God. Paul says, for instance, my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory. So when I'm struggling with a deep need, I don't despair. I say, thank you, Lord, for your promise. And I stand on it. I speak it over my life. I rebuke curses in my life. I rebuke sickness. I rebuke poverty. I rebuke depression. I rebuke these things because they're part of the curse. But you cannot rebuke persecution. You cannot rebuke persecution for the gospel's sake. If what you are suffering, and see this is it, well, Jesus showed Paul, he told Paul, I will show him what great things he must suffer for his name's sake. And they take that or a couple statements like it and say, see, the word of faith movement is wrong because they don't believe in suffering. Yes, we do. But Jesus was very specific about what we would suffer. We would suffer persecution. We would suffer rejection. Even while enjoying favor, favor with God, favor with man, we got to grapple with the fact that culture at large is going to reject us. And as we are seeing all over the world, but thank God, not yet in America, genuine persecution. You cannot rebuke jail if you are being thrown in jail for, belief, uh, for your belief in Christ. There's no glory to God if you're thrown in jail uh, for stealing or for murder. Well, I'm just suffering for the gospel. No, you're not. You're suffering because of your own foolish choices. But if you're suffering persecution for your commitment to the gospel, you can't rebuke that. You can rejoice in it. Paul found it. Man, I've learned how to, to, uh, to abound, right, and to be abased. I'm not going to sweat it. The, the, the center of my joy is being right in the middle of God's will. This, and this is where we need to be. So what that tells me, church, and you can stand up, is we do have something every single day to be grateful for. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.